0: Good morning, church. Good morning. I hope you are all doing and feeling well this morning. I uh, I was thinking while we were singing. You know, the Old Testament has the record of the songbook of Israel. The poets and authors writ- wrote the Psalms, and uh, we get the joy of that record. The, uh, the ones that God inspired to be saved... And I just was wondering as we were singing this morning, which ones make the cut for heaven? You know what I mean? Because some of these songs through the ages, we, we're, we can't just leave them behind. I mean, Amazing Grace, don't you think that's going to make the cut? You know, songs we've not even heard of in Chinese or, or other songs in Hebrew or Spanish that are going to make the cut. And I just was thinking this morning, I wonder, I wonder which songs we sing now that we'll, we'll get to sing again in heaven. And uh, maybe teach to our friends who have not yet learned them. Um, It's just a a pretty cool thing to remember that the one thing we carry with us for certain into heaven is worship. I have been covering uh, a few foundation principles. And the one I'm going to start today is going to take a couple of three weeks to wrap up. So I'm going to start with one. Um, if you don't fully get everything you were expecting to get, there's more to come. I hope to wrap up in a place that makes sense, that puts a little bow on the end of this process today. Um, a couple of things just as reminders as we get started. Remember a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I introduced you the concept, and I repeated it again last week, that there are couple of different kinds of law. There's prescriptive law, which is a law that prescribes a behavior, a prescriptive law. The stop sign is a prescriptive law, remember? It says stop at the intersection, but the prescriptive law in case of the stop, stop sign is there to keep you from interacting with a descriptive law. A descriptive law simply describes, describes versus prescribes, simply describes what is true. The prescriptive law of the stop sign keeps you from interacting with the descriptive law of physics that two masses cannot occupy the same space. Clear? Prescriptive law, descriptive law. Here's the point. The point you must understand in order to really get what's going on in Scripture. God's laws are descriptive. Descriptive. Your interactions with God's God's laws are such that those laws cannot be broken. If you try to make two masses occupy the same space, we have what is known as a collision, right? If you try to break the law of gravity, we have that sudden stop at the bottom, The the laws of God are simply describing reality. Okay? This is going to be important for you to remember as we talk a little bit today. One of the New Testament laws that I want to bring into your, your thoughts as we talk today is the wages of sin is death. The reason you need to understand this is descriptive because if it's prescriptive, then you sit back and you assume that God is just mad and mean about this. He's decided that this is what he's going to do about sin. He's just going to be angry with you and he's going to deal with you in in an angry and mean way. And it is the way our culture looks at this rule. The wages of sin is death. Our culture looks at it and says, See, your God is angry all the time and mean and he's going to kill you if you don't follow him. If the law of God, the wages of sin is death, is descriptive, it is simply saying sin cannot occupy the same space. As a divine and holy God. By nature, as true as physics. Got it? Okay, important thing to recognize because it changes your opinion about God when you recognize that one thing. He is not just mad at you, He's simply describing what is true. It is a warning. It is not a threat. A caution sign when a bridge is out is not a threat. The wages of sin is death is not a threat. It's simply a warning that the bridge is out. Got it? So I want to talk today about uh, a couple of things. I want you to get this layer in first. I guess maybe second because I put the first one in already. John saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, as a New Testament Christian, you've looked at that and you've kind of put some pieces together immediately. Oh, Lamb of God, that's referring to the Old Testament sanctuary. Taking this away the sins of the world, that's referring to the crucifixion. I get it. The Old Testament sanctuary, the Lamb that died. The New Testament, Jesus, the Lamb of God, died. Takes away the sins of the world. Get it. Got it. Good. But if you just see that piece, you miss a bigger implication. And I want to take you to the bigger piece today. So... um, the earthly sanctuary. Here's my, my, uh, best I could get done this week to give you an image of it. I like this image a lot. It's a poster about this big and I scanned it in our, in our, uh, office and so if you see it so that it's not quite perfectly aligned, just squint a little bit till it's fuzzy and it'll be straight. Don't worry about it. But I want you to see in this particular one, uh oh, my pointer's not pointing. In this particular one, and I left the other one in the office, um, In the background, far back in the end, you see that bright light sort of thing in the back. That bright light sort of thing in the back is one of those... We're going to switch and try that? Sure, we'll try it. All right. Uh, Maybe... There it goes. Okay, hey. That bright light in the back. Does anybody know what that is? It's the presence of God called the Shekinah glory. And it's sitting there on top of a box, which we call the Ark of the Covenant. People in our time only know of the Ark of the Covenant from a movie. Right? What's the movie? See, I told you, you knew because of that. And the Raiders of the Last Ark, they found the Ark of the Covenant, they opened it up, bad things happened, it was a bad idea... Anyway, that's what they're talking about back there, the Ark of the Covenant. It sits inside a little cubicle in the back of the sanctuary. In that little cubicle, there is the presence of God and is divided from the rest by a curtain. This curtain is split off here so you can see in. That curtain would have gone all the way across. This curtain would have come down. It would have been an enclosed space. So in the back back there is a cubicle where God dwelt. Coolest thing when you look at this story. God says to to Moses, Let the people of Israel build me a sanctuary so I might dwell with them. I want to be as close to my kids as I can possibly be. I have kids who are thinking about moving around the country. You know, they're saying, oh, well, we could live in Texas. Oh, well, we can move here. Oh. And I'm just thinking about, hey, you can't move. These, these are my kids. You can't take off and go somewhere halfway across the country. That's not right. Those of you who have kids and grandkids who are spread out, you know, you know the feeling, right? God came to earth. He told Israel, build me a sanctuary so I might live close to you. I might live close to you. But if sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy divine God, he had to build a wall of separation. Stay, with, you got it with me now? You see how point one and point two are coming together? That wall of separation, he put himself in a cubicle so that he could be close, knowing he couldn't be right next to us. That is pretty phenomenal grace right there. The love of God. How rich and full. So in the back there, there's also this little guy right here. You can't see him very well, but that's the priest. Dressed in his high priestly garments. And as he is standing back there in that little spot, he's dressed in the for a, day, a particular day. It's called the Day of Atonement. As you walk on out through the entrance of this thing, you see there's a, a candlestick, which most of you are aware of. That's that seven-sided candlestick known as a menorah. Down here, there's the table or a uh, an altar called the altar of incense where incense was put on isn't that amazing it's called the altar of incense and incense is on it the incense though is not just for the sake of smelling good it's to represent the prayers of the saints and it would go up fill this outer portion and go over the veil into the presence of god symbolizing the fact that your prayers get to god that cool and then over here was what's known as the table of showbread where there was bread demonstrating that God was providing for the needs of His people. So God in this outer section says, I am the light of the world. I provide for you all the light necessary. I provide the food that is necessary for you and I hear your prayers. Do you see the promises on the outside? Separated by that veil in this earth where we live God is saying I, I will provide everything you need. I've got you covered. Okay? Okay? introduction to this to the sanctuary now we're going to come back to this several times i'm not going to give you another explanation of most of it but to get the picture the exterior portion here represents the relationship with god and man on earth the interior portion represents the relationship with god in heaven okay nailed down i want you to get this because right now I hear, there's some preaching going on there's some teaching going on about how this is about you getting pure that it's you working your way toward God getting yourself all fixed up and pure. Well, that, that, that cleansing takes place out here where the Lamb of God is sacrificed. And what goes on back here is about how God is going to deal with the sin problem. And I'll walk, walk you through that today. First of all, our sin problem, we talked about this a few days ago, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Does that include you? Does it include your neighbor? Yes, it does. Second one, Romans 623, that was 323, this is 623. The wages of sin is death. Is this a prescriptive law? No, this is a descriptive law. It's simply stating the fact. When you sin, eventually that will come to a point where that, that sinfulness cannot occupy the same space as God and you will therefore be destroyed. Here's how you like, to, here I like to explain it when I'm talking to children. I find that this usually works with adults really well. So if I gave you a cup of gasoline, okay, and I said, okay, here's your cup of gasoline, go stand by the fire. First of all, you'd be very careful, wouldn't you? Could you stand by the fire with a cup of gasoline? You're careful. If you took the same cup of gasoline and you poured it all over your clothes and went and stood by the fire, then what would be the problem? So if you think about sin like that cup of gasoline, it's simply saying there's a combustible thing about this in the presence of God. Don't imbibe it, don't take it onto yourself, don't pour it all over yourself. Don't make this a part of you because eventually it will go away. Got it? Okay. I'll keep on moving, I promise. So we're back to the sanctuary. Our problem is sin, God's problem is dealing with that sin. How is he going to take care of us? And this sanctuary begins to describe this. Now think about Israel. Israel is a basically illiterate group of people who have been living in a foreign land for the last 400 years. They know about sacrifices, they know about the lambs, they know some things, but they don't yet fully understand how this relationship with God thing is going to work. Up to this point, it's been a family connection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's always been a family connection with God. And now it's a national connection with God, and so he institutes this bigger picture for them to get the understanding, for them to begin to figure out what he's talking about. It looks like I'm hurrying, it because I'm trying to... He is going to take this nation and teach them something about himself. He starts by using a physical form that they're accustomed to. Get this point. Keep it in your mind. Don't let it go away. This is the same form of a sanctuary that the Canaanites and the Egyptians and everybody else used. Same basic structure. Think about it. God uses the architecture that they're familiar with to reach them in a way that they're unfamiliar with. Make sense to you? Okay. The difference is this veil. This veil is the only thing that's different from all the other sanctuaries in the the area. It makes the veil, therefore, the most important thing. It makes the veil the thing they're going to walk in and go, Oh, that's different. Oh, yeah, we're going to have an altar outside where you burn stuff. We're going to have a laver to wash before you go in. We're going to have in there some some items that demonstrate the interaction with God and a light because you're going to need a light inside there. And then God's going to be in the very back. That's the way it always is. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be a veil. Well, why is there going to be a veil? Oh, and by the way, you can't go into the veil. Well, wait a minute. Everybody goes inside with the God. That's what happens. That veil, that veil of separation is very, very important. It is the most significant difference between this and everything else they've ever seen. This would make the Israelite who's looking at it go, Hmm, why? What that? Why that? I don't understand. Why do we get separated? What's the deal? You see, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Moabites, everybody else, all the other ites had no perception of sin separating them from God. They simply went into the presence of their God in order to manipulate that God. They went into the presence of their God to perform whatever deed that God required of them so that they might manipulate that God and get Him to do what they wanted. Their God says, no, there's a separation between us. And it's caused by this bigger problem. It's caused by a choice your your family made to separate from me. It's caused by sin. And as a result of that there's going to be a separation between us. And that's going to last until the end when I deal with it. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, describes this as it relates to the whole planet. So think about it. If sin can't dwell in the presence of God, what is he going to do about all the sin? Here's how it's described by Jeremiah. Now, the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is writing after Israel is taken into Babylon. He's upset. And if you were to back up and read the rest of these uh, these first couple of chapters, you'd see him saying, It's breaking my heart, God. I can't believe this is going on. In fact, he sounds a lot like Job here. And then he gets to this point. He says, This I recall to mind. So in the middle of that complaint, the middle of that crying out, This I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies. Through what? Lord's mercies. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Stop and think about it. Wages of sin is death. The description at the end of time is that sin is consumed. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. When two sons of... of just lost his name. All you who grew up Adventists, give me the name of the first priest. Aaron, thank you. The two sons of Aaron walk into the Holy of Holies without clearance from God. Wander in there with unholy fire, just throwing some, some incense on a fire and wandering in it there as they thought was okay. The Bible says, fire came out from the altar in the back where God was and consumed them. Same word, same idea. He's saying, because of God's mercies... We are not consumed. So let me ask you a question. Is that veil of separation between us and God, is it about God despising us and not wanting to see us? Or is it about His mercy? I would like to dwell with my children. I'd like to be as close to them as possible. But the sin problem is going to cause them a problem. So I want to be separate. You're going to have to separate me. And so... God hides from me behind a veil, not because He doesn't like me, not because I'm awful, not because I'm disgusting to Him, but because I can't survive in His presence. Pastor Tim's going to talk about one of those major incidents in Scripture next week with you, and he's going to talk about Moses on the mountain and how this fits Moses on the mountain. His mercies are new, or his, because of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. There's a bunch right here. I wish I had time to go through. There's Day of Atonement. There's morning sacrifice. There's a whole bunch of cool things right there. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. Your mercy, your veil between us and you is there every morning to keep us from being consumed by your presence the wages of sin is death and God's presence is everywhere. There has to be a separation in order for us not to be consumed. You get it? I know I'm kind of building a a case like one of your professors in college, but I want you to understand it. I want you to get the pieces that fit together, because I'm really trying to build something here that will, I think, transform the way you think about God. If the wages of sin is death, and His mercies are new every morning so that we're not consumed, then God has been protecting us from the results of sin since Satan first sinned. God built some wall of mercy, some wall of separation between them right there at the the first day. God had to intercede with the natural course of history miraculously to keep the destruction from happening in the very first moment of sin. And he has kept that in place to this day. And he keeps it in place day after day after day after day. Think of the daily sacrifices if you've got that sacrificial system in your mind and that daily reminder that his mercy is new, his mercy is new, his mercy is new, his mercy is new. new. Every day, every moment, every second of our lives, there is God's mercy. When Israel is being taught How to deal with sin. God gives them a very customary prescription and process. Here's what you're going to do, guys. When you've done something wrong, when you've done something sinful, you're going to bring an animal. Here's a process. He shall bring the bull to the door. This is one of the sin offerings. There's a couple of different ones. We won't go into all of them. They're all pretty much the same. He shall bring a bull to the door to the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Lay his hands on the bull's head. What is he doing when he's laying his hands on the bull's head? He's confessing his sin or the sin of his family. Remember, you couldn't actually bring it if you were a girl, sorry. If you were a kid, sorry. If you were an uncle, sorry. You were the father, the leader of that house, that family. You brought the sin offering for your family. Brings it on, confesses the sin on the head of the bull. Doing what? Transferring the responsibility of that sin from the man to the animal. Got it? Okay. Got it in the back? Okay. Lays his hands on the bull's head. Kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood, bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord. There's several sin offerings. Some end up right here. Nothing else happens. Confess your sin on the on the head. The, the, uh, the blood is spilled off, put on the horns of this altar and poured out at the base of the altar. For the ones that are significant to the whole body, they go in before the Lord. They sprinkle some on the veil seven times. They put some on the horns of this altar in here and then they come back out. So what's happening? Sins are being transferred into the sanctuary either on this altar, on this altar, or on this veil. Got it? Yeah. Person sin to the animal, animal's blood taken inside, therefore carrying the sin into... The sanctuary got it, just nod, yes. okay Whew. day of atonement comes the day when it 's time to clear up the sanctuary. Why is this a foundational principle of this church? because if you don 't understand it, you don 't understand God. Day of atonement comes now he 's going to clean up the mess, trash day, day of dealing with sin. How are we going to deal with the big problem of sin in our world? Day of atonement comes. Then he's talking about the high priest. That's the he. He shall take two goats. How many goats? Two goats. And present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he has got the two goats. It comes to the place where you're going to sacrifice an animal. He brings the two goats. And he said, then Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats. Casting lots is like casting dice. It's just a random way of selecting something. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord. And the other lot for the scapegoat. One lot for who? The Lord. The Lord's goat. One lot for the who? The scapegoat, the other goat. Okay, so you got the Lord's goat and you got the scapegoat. Okay, when you hear someone call the scapegoat, it's biblical language, it's right from this passage. Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as what? A sin offering. Offer it as a sin offering. Now notice no one's hands have been put on it. He's offering it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So one of these goats is going to die as a sin offering. The other goat's going to live, going to keep going, going to be taken out into the wilderness. Got me so far. I don't know if this is boring you, it's exciting to me. (laughs) Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people to bring its blood inside the veil. So now, where is this blood going? All the way back to the back of the sanctuary, inside the veil. He's going to take the blood of this goat and go all the way in with it. One, once a year, high priest only, goes all the way into the presence of God. And where God's throne is, is called the mercy seat. His mercies are new every morning. His throne is founded upon mercy. His mercy seat. He takes it into the beyond the veil to the mercy seat. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is the people's, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, which we would, would have been described earlier, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat bef- and before the mercy seat. He goes there into that most holy place back there. He enters through this veil right here. Goes back into that shining glorious place. He brings his. It's incense, all incense censor with him. He's supposed to put enough finely ground incense on this that smoke fills the room and now there's a veil between him and the presence of God created by the smoke of the incense which is the prayers of the saints. Man, you should pray for people who stand with you before God. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. For what? For the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. The whole camp. And because of their transgressions, for all their sins, so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he goes into this place and he's making atonement. He's cleaning up all of the mess In the place. It's trash day in the sanctuary. What's the trash? Sin. How did it get there? It was transferred from man to animal, from the blood of the animal to the sanctuary. Now from a different animal, it's being collected and taken out. I thought today I should bring some trash bags up here, but it was just a little too much drama. He, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, but because of their transgressions, for all of their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meaning which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. He goes in and he collects all of the sin that's been symbolically transferred over to this place and he gathers it up and he brings it out cleaning up the house, cleaning up the place. He's going to put some of that on the holy on the altar inside. He's going to put it on the horns of the altar there of incense. He's going to sprinkle some of it on the veil. He's going to come outside, sprinkle some on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. Why? Because all of those places have been in contact with the blood of the sin offering. You with me? And when He has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting... The altar, he shall bring the live goat. What is the name of the live goat? The scapegoat. If you're waiting, exciting part's coming. Don't go to sleep now. Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel. And all their transgressions. Concerning all their sins. Putting them on the head of the goat. What's just happened to the sins that were there? What's happened to all the trash? Bam! On the head of that goat. Okay? All the sins of the people have been transferred out onto the head of that goat. And shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The the Hebrew here actually should be translated a strong man. Get a big guy so the goat doesn't get away. It's basically what this is saying. Get somebody who's not going to let this goat get away. This is a very important goat. And we don't want him wandering back into town because he's carrying all the transgressions of the entire group of Israel from the last year. You're taking out the trash, buddy. Get it to all the way out. Okay? He takes this thing out into the wilderness. He doesn't kill it. He lets it live. And he sets it free. For probably 15 years, this passage right here bugged me and bugged me and bugged me. I know when something's bugging me, God has got something for me. Just listen, wait, and listen, wait, and listen, wait, and listen, wait. This one is core to understanding God because of what happens to this goat. So what's going to happen to the goat that's been hauled out there into the wilderness? The goat shall bear on itself... All their iniquities to an uninhabited land, he shall release the goat in the wilderness. What's going to happen to the goat? Fly, be free. Kinda. We call her Mother Nature. The goat is taken outside to a wilderness place out from the protection of the flock watch the language the goat is taken outside into a wilderness place away from the protection of the flock and left to the mercies of a sinful planet are there any mercies in the sinful planet is the goat going to survive in a week Or a day he might be eaten by something. Or that goat may live for 50 years. He might be the oldest living goat on record. But eventually he's going to die of old age. Eventually the grip of sin on the planet will deal with the goat. Out from the protection of the flock of God, the goat is left to his own devices... And the destruction that is natural to sin. Because the wages of sin is death. The way God describes in this event. Him dealing with sin. Carefully listen. Carefully listen. Carefully listen. The way God describes him dealing with sin at the end of time when it is the final day of earth's history, the final day of sin is that He allows the natural consequences that have been veiled and protected from man all of this time to finally take place. It's described in Revelation in this way. And fire came down from God and consumed them. Because if the words, the wages of sin is death, is simply descriptive of the fact that sin cannot dwell in the presence of God, then when the veil is finally pulled back and the separation is ended, sin is gone. It's simply God saying, I will no longer be separated from my children. and when he pulls back the veil of separation the consequences that he has been miraculously keeping from happening finally happen so i want to give you last one last picture that's a pretty solemn note about the last end But I want you to understand this is not a mean, angry God grabbing and wresting from these people their last breath. This is a merciful, gracious, loving Father finally saying, I just won't be separated anymore. And the normal wages of sin come to bear in life. Those who choose it. So, in this picture, I want to point out one last thing. Have you ever noticed that when you spill blood on your clothes, it doesn't just stay on the surface? Have you realized that because of the blood, there is access to the innermost mercy seat of God? You see, what happens is you follow that blood from the sin offering. Some is sprinkled on the horns of the altar where it's going to be burnt. Some is taken into the, most, or into the holy place, the place where man interacts with God. and Some is sprinkled on the corners of the altar of incense. And some is sprinkled in the veil. And when it hits the veil, the blood goes right through into the presence of God. And it penetrates that veil. And there has always been access to God through the blood of the Lamb. And no matter who's finding themselves in a struggle with sin, if they will choose the sacrifice of Christ as their own, there is access to that mercy right through the veil because of the blood. If you're sitting here today and you have a question about this, if there's something just grinding away at you inside and you're not certain, you're not certain about whether or not you're right with God, don't wait another 30 seconds. It's a simple choice. It's a choice that has an eternal, amazing difference. It's a choice to take in the merciful covering of God, to accept the blood of the Lamb as your sacrifice, to let your sins be transferred from you to the Lamb, and let the access that Jesus has provided to the mercy of God be handed to you in this moment. You don't have to have everything figured out, no one does. You don't have to understand all of the things that are in the scripture from A to Z. You don't have to have anything figured out other than this one thing. I'd like to be rid of sin and I'd like to follow Jesus. I'd like to be covered by his mercy and walk home with him. That's where you are today. I'm going to pray. And as I close in prayer, all you have to do is ask God for that covering. You don't have to announce it to anyone. You just have to announce it to him. Let's pray. Father God, the reality is there's going to be a day when you end sin's influence in the world. When all the mess that we find ourselves in comes to an end. And the natural consequences of our choices come to bear on us. Lord, today some of us sitting in this room have a question that's just nagging us about where we will spend eternity, whether we will be with you or whether we will not. So we choose to be covered by the grace of God. We choose for the intercession of your mercy. We choose the covering of the blood of the Lamb, the robe of Christ's righteousness. Some of us have been thinking about it a long time, researching and reading, and we know what it's about. Some of us are still trying to figure it out. But we choose. We choose access to the mercy seat, the throne of God, by the blood of the Lamb. In the name of that Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen.